Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. He konai purangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. We often meet patients and their families and, and neurosurgeons as well. And the common thing they say is, if you can get this to work, it's a game changer for their, their lives. And that's pretty powerful for us as an incentive. And crikey, we better crack on and get this done because they're waiting and they want this. Naumai hairumai ki tō tātou au hurihuri. Welcome to Our Changing World. Ko Clerken Cannon aho. I wiki, this week, we visit a lab in the Auckland Bioengineering Institute to hear from Simon Malpas and his team. They're working on what they hope will be the first New Zealand-designed Class 3 medical device. What does that mean? Well... Medical devices are rated by their potential risk, from class 1, which is low risk, upwards. So a sticky plaster is a class 1 medical device. It's placed on the skin, so there's still an approval process and a level of safety required, but the risk is super low. Class 2 have a bit more risk, something that is used or implanted inside the body short term or as longer term skin contact. Class 3 is something that is long-term implanted inside the body, and as a result, the potential risk is high. This lab is designing a pressure sensor to be implanted within the brain. Simon Malpas gave me the background. Several years ago, I became interested in a clinical condition called hydrocephalus, and this occurs where there's too much production of the fluid that bathes the brain. Or or it can be a lack of excretion or removal of that. Now, we produce roughly half a litre a day of this fluid. So that's quite a lot of fluid when you think about a can of Coke or something. It's quite a bit. So that has to be taken up and circulated. Normally that's fine. We don't notice it. But in some people, either during gestation or associated with trauma or a tumour, they can develop an imbalance between production and removal of this fluid, this cerebral spinal fluid. And if there's too much fluid in this brain area, because our skulls are obviously like a compartment, a rigid compartment, um, it doesn't stretch, the bone doesn't stretch. So the pressure rises with this increase in fluid and that constricts on the tissue within the brain. And of course, as we can understand, this has a lot of pathological events. And this is a condition that happens in children. It can happen throughout life as well, but in particular it's most traumatic for children and their parents and whānau dealing with that. And before the development of a means to drain that extra fluid away, this was uniformly fatal, pretty much. But really since the 50s, 60s, the catheter tube shunt, as we term it, was developed to drain this extra fluid from a cavity in the brain, which 
holds the fluid, the ventricles, down into the stomach area. And this has been great, you know, it keeps those kids alive. So when the shunt was invented, it was already a big game changer for these patients. But unfortunately, the story doesn't end there. But the problem is, with all good things, there's a downside. The downside is they block up. So you've got a tube that's draining this extra fluid, it blocks. And really about 50% of children will have a blockage within two years of receiving their shunt. So you can imagine as a parent with your newborn or young child, the neurosurgeon has placed this catheter in, in the brain, it's all everything's good, but they've then said, well, we need to keep in mind that this is a medical device, but it's likely to fail. You know, the incidence is really around 90% over five years. And when it fails, well, what are the symptoms of beginning to fail? Headaches, vomiting, nausea. Now, children have those sometimes on a daily basis. Yeah. <laughs> so it becomes really hard for parents to understand, is that the shunt failing or is that just something else? So I can begin as a parent to understand that anxiety so currently, kids and people with hydrocephalus will appear in the hospital. They'll be admitted for observation. Um, they might have a scan, a CT scan, which has some radiation exposure. They might have an MRI if they can. But all of that is expensive and time-consuming. And actually, two-thirds of the time, it's not the shunt that's the problem. There's something else going on. So the quest for us is to actually solve this problem clinically to provide parents, whānau and healthcare professionals with a tool to monitor whether their shunt that's been placed is working well. And the idea, in a broad sense, is if we can provide tools that enable people to be in their own home, being monitored, and yet having a confidence that if something changes within their bodies, within hydrocephalus or some other chronic condition, that they will receive information that says, okay, you should go to the hospital, you should contact your GP, or maybe take an extra tablet a day. So this is really moving the whole paradigm of healthcare from reactive treatment, wait until symptoms happen or changes happen, to proactive. This is the challenge, to design a medical device that will be implanted in the brain of these patients at the same time that the shunt is placed. So the implant must be able to detect pressure changes inside the brain and relay that information back to the patient or caregiver. How do you design a sensor that's going to be implanted in a brain to monitor changes in pressure? It seems that teamwork is a big part of the answer. Different researchers work on different aspects of the challenge in the lab, but all collaborate together for this shared goal. When I catch up with the team, they're all in the open plan office area, next to the hotly disputed bright green wall. But they also have two lab areas with a range of equipment and electronics for both building and testing the sensors. Dixon Leung, whose role in the team is focused on the mechanical aspects of sensor design and performance testing, explains the first requirement of the sensor. You need something to actually detect the pressure change in the brain. He brings me to a small lab space full of equipment. We need to make sure that the sensor is robust um, to operate inside a brain, is to withstand the pressure 
and also it needs to be optimized to give a very sensitive response to um, especially just pressure inside the brain. Mechanically, how does the sensor operate? So if there's an increase in pressure in the brain, what happens to the sensor? So the sensor is like a box of a very thin membrane. As we apply pressure to that membrane, it will deflect in a particular direction. So I guess if, as we make the membrane thinner and thinner, there'll be more and more deflection. But if we make it too thin, for example, um, it's not very robust and it can cause breakage okay. in the material. So it's kind of that Goldilocks moment just hitting that right... That's right. It needs to be optimised just at the right um, thickness. And this is the machinery that helps you to test that optimization. Yes, that's right. So I'm in charge of performance testing of um, these sensors. And in this room we have um, several very um, interesting equipment for doing that. So we have pressure controllers and temperature controllers, which controls to three decimal points. We need to be able to make sure these sensors are operating to a certain standard. One of the pieces of equipment in this room is a profilometer. Actually, to be precise, it's a digital holographic profilometer. So the sensor is put in a metal box in which the temperature and pressure is carefully controlled. And Dixon then increases the pressure to see how the membrane responds. In the profilometer, lasers are bounced off the surface of the membrane, and this creates a hologram that allows them to calculate deflection. So there are also monitors in this room, and they're displaying a little colourful rectangle, the membrane. Now, of course, on the monitor, it looks quite big, blown up by the attached microscope. But in reality, these deflections are tiny. We're actually looking at the deflection of our pressure sensor, and as we change the pressure that's applied um, inside a container, we can actually see how much that profile is changing over time. So you can see the, um, the blue surface, and then the center of it is getting deeper and deeper in color, until it changes to more like a red or purple color there. So it's becoming more and more um, concave. Okay. So the deflection we're looking at is extremely tiny. Imagine the width of a piece of hair is about 100 microns. We're looking at about a thousand times smaller than that. Okay. So we're looking at nanometer deflections, much smaller than the width of a hair. So the amount of pressure in the brain depends on if you're sitting, lying or standing on your head. But Simon told me a range of normal is 2 to 3 to 10 millimetres of mercury. Now, this millimetre of mercury is the same scale as blood pressure. You know, your standard 120 over 80 blood pressure is 120 millimetres mercury of pressure. And in the brain, 15 millimetres mercury of pressure is like kind of the upper limit of intracranial pressure. And you start to get worried around this. So we're talking about really small changes in pressure that have to be detected by this sensor. As Dixon tests the sensitivity of this membrane, deflecting in nanometer amounts, another researcher in the lab, Brian Wright, who's the lead tech developer for the project, is testing the membrane's robustness. So our application is that we need to have the sensor 
inside of someone for a very, very long time, years and years, which is quite a, a tall ask in that you have to make sure that your sensor is going to work for a very long time. So to help us figure out if our sensors are going to be reliable enough and we would trust them enough to put them in the application, then we have to do accelerated testing on our sensors. It's a little bit challenging because some of the things age in real time and some things can be aged quickly. But what we are listening to here is a pneumatic cycling machine which takes the sensor through about the pressure range of a heartbeat 10 times a second. So if we want to know this is going to last for 10 years, we might be able to run it through the same amount of heartbeats, for instance, that happen over that time span. So we have to speed it up a little bit. And speeding it up by 10 times means we'll have to run this machine continuously for a year in our sensors to run them through that, that span. But, but so far, so good. We've done this now for the equivalent of about several years of cycling on some of our early prototypes. And they've come through quite well. So. So the membrane is going to be compressed and then relaxed each time that this heartbeat comes through. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Testing whether it can put up with years and years and years and years of this. It is a stress test. The, the idea being that if we push this in all the way and we pull it out all the way and we do that 10 times a second, that's about as hard a condition as you would ever see the sensor being used for. So if it survives that, then mechanically we know that the sensor is built well. It's all well and good to have a sensitive, robust membrane implanted in the brain that deflects under pressure. But how can you translate that into a readout that the patient can access and understand? This is where Robert Galishin comes in. His role is to build the teeny tiny electronic circuit that will fit into this teeny tiny sensor device and convert the membrane deflection into a pressure reading. We don't have a lot of room to put all these electronics. It's a very small sensor. So part of my role is taking a lot of these different parts of the, the circuit, the different components, and putting them onto one single, uh, it's called an integrated circuit, and it's a little silicon chip that combines a whole bunch of different components. There's a few tasks. One is that we need to receive power and create a nice, stable power supply. So we have some very sensitive electronics to measure the pressure, and we need to give it a very nice stable supply voltage. So one of the tasks is to take this magnetic field and turn it into a stable DC supply. Another part of that is actually measuring the pressure. So we have a pressure sensor. It creates like an electrical signal, and we need to measure that, and we need to do some filtering and some different things to it to, to make it interpretable. And then we hand that back to some other circuitry, and that sends that signal back out out of the body. So it's getting power in, taking the measurement, and sending the measurement back out. So say you're, the sensor is on mm. and powered up, and the membrane is detecting pressure, it's deflected. Yeah. What happens then in terms of the, the circuit that you've created? So that deflection of that membrane creates a change in charge that we can pick up through our our circuit so we can kind of detect that deflection and turn that into a signal which we can then process. And the size of the signal will tell you like the amount of deflection yeah, and exactly, the exactly. So the pressure. more it deflects the bigger the signal is and so we can then calibrate that and for a given signal we know how much deflection has occurred and then we know how much pressure there is. And how long does it take to develop something like this? Um, so the 
been working on this for about three years, so there was a, a good section of the start around understanding really what the problem is and what the real issues are and, and coming up with some concepts just at like a high conceptual level. How can we get power and how can we get data out? How much room do we have to work with? Once we had all those details mapped down, it was really about getting in there and starting to design the electronics. And so there was a good six month at the start, which was just understanding the high level requirements and then say six months to design the actual integrated circuit. And then there's been uh, a few years since then of working on the rest of the electronics and figuring out how we can not just build one or two of these, but actually manufacture them at, at a level where we could produce as many as we need. Robert mentioned at the start, magnetic field and power. That's because the idea here is that this really tiny sensor won't have a battery and it won't have wires coming out of it. It is two millimetres by three millimetres by 18 millimetres. Not much space for a power pack. And that's where Daniel comes in. Uh, yeah, I'm Daniel McCormick. I'm a wireless power engineer, mostly, and I've been working here at the Bioengineering Institute probably for 15 years on that problem. Okay. Since uh, 2006. I guess over those many years we've developed a bit of a specialty here for implantable devices. That's obviously different than consumer devices like phones. But uh, what we've been working on for quite a while is trying to evolve the technology so it's small enough to go into devices which can go in the body without traumatising the body too much. So if you want a brain pressure sensor... Obviously, you can't have a very big device because mm. it will do a lot of tissue damage. We finally got there, I think, and we've developed a device which is, you know, the size of a Tic Tac, smaller than a paracetamol pill, but larger than a grain of rice. So it's pretty small, and that's taken quite a lot of work to get there. So um, there's quite a few ways in which you can transmit power wirelessly. But probably the most common way to do it, particularly for medical devices and consumer devices, is to use magnetic fields. What we do is we have in our device, which is a handheld system here I'm holding, and there's a coil shape. And inside that we have a coil which generates a magnetic field. And we turn on some electronics inside. And that coil, when a current flows through it, will have a magnetic field around it. And that's kind of like projecting energy out from the coil and so all we have to do, in the simplest sense, to harvest that energy is to put our device in the field and it has a coil and it receives the energy and does its function. So um, it, it uses magnetic fields which go through the body almost without being noticed. Okay. In fact, the, the effects at the frequency we use are so small that they're hard to measure on the body. Um, we are obviously in a magnetic field everywhere we are from the Earth's magnetic field, and it's not that different to what we do here. Um, we just make the field alternate so that we can harvest energy from it. So Daniel is holding this magnetic wand, and actually it looks like a big bubble wand, so it has a handle and a circular loop at the end. And this external device will be used by patients to power the implant when they want to get a pressure reading. And they do this by simply holding it up to their heads. So then the people that have the implant will also have a device like this to yeah. create a magnetic field. 
to switch it on. Yep. And so if we imagined this device in your brain, we would hold our device up next to your head, press a button, it would generate a magnetic field, that would power up the device and our device would transmit back a pressure measurement which would be received by our external device and um, yeah that would get the reading out so it involves holding a device up to your head to make a measurement to make sure the magnetic field is in the right location to uh, energize our device. Of course the electronics need to be tested as well. Here's Brian again. So what we're doing here is planning for manufacture of our sensors. We manufacture these both in combination in New Zealand and overseas. And because of the very special nature of our sensor, we have to develop some of the test tools for manufacture ourselves. And so what you're looking at here is the beginnings of a test tool. And it's going around and you hear it whir, and it'll find a site using a camera, very accurately locate that site down to, again, microns in position. And then it'll go up and it'll approach and probe electrically that site to check some performance of the sensor before it gets built. So it's called a probe station. So this is a test of the electronics side of things? That's right. So our sensor is a combination of the sort of deflection that you talked about with Dixon, but also a set of electronics inside of the sensor that interpret the signal and then send it out so we can read it. And so when that gets built, we have to test those electronics to make sure that they're working very well before we seal them into the sensor. And so that's what this machine will do during manufacture. And what you've said at the start there is because this sensor is so new and novel for New Zealand, there's no existing equipment that can test this kind of sensor. And hence, you're building your own test equipment. Yes, that's, that's correct. And it's not, I guess, that unusual that in manufacture you might develop test stations. Um, for us, it's a little unusual in that um, we don't normally think in a research sense about manufacturing. So to plan for that now has been one of the innovative uh, parts of our program. Uh, we're making sure that what we can design and come up with and we think will work for the application uh, is going to be manufacturable. Okay, so you don't come up with this wonderful research idea and develop a prototype and then it comes up against a wall of not being able to be manufactured because there's no testing. Yeah, that's right. I mean, we're we're driven by the idea that we want to see our, our ideas in medical practice. And to do that, the reality is you have to have it manufactured professionally. Uh, so building a prototype that proves our concept would have been one goal of the research. But in fact, we wanted to do that in a way that we could make thousands of them to a very high quality that we could then get into market. The team have been working on the development of this for quite a while, but they're aware that there's still a lot more yet to do. It is a large undertaking. I mean, we, we are not under any illusions that this is a trivial undertaking. We're not doing it as an academic exercise. We won't be satisfied until we can get this into clinics you know, in New Zealand. Okay. So the next stage then, will you be working with clinical partners? Well, we certainly do now. We have good relations with Auckland City Hospital, 
and you know the neurosurgeons there, Peter Hepner is, is an example, has been someone that cares a lot for the local hydrocephalus community and been really valuable as a source of input and advice. Uh, and the, so, so absolutely clinical input is paramount. Our next phase is actually to go out to patients and ask their families, you know, what do they think about our designs and understand and take them on the journey with us. And that includes Māori involvement and understanding the tikanga around making a measurement, the curation of that data, the care and attention to the data and how we treat patient privacy and things like that. So we're kind of building a picture that's not just the sensor, which is kind of electronics and small, but recognising there's a whole lot of bigger picture around this that needs to be addressed too. In terms of a timeline for from now Mm -hmm. to presumably clinical trials. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So we obviously have a huge amount of bench testing to do, what we term bench testing in the lab here. But we're really starting to feel hopeful, confident, fingers crossed. Um, Our target, and we all, we kind of all have put forward our ideas and we think two and a half to three years. So a lot of testing yet to be done and then animal and clinical trials. But if they can achieve their goal, having this sensor will allow people with hydrocephaly to switch from reactive to proactive care. And it has the potential to reduce anxiety for those two out of three times, especially for those who live in rural New Zealand, for whom major health centres might be hours away. So we think by actually providing a pressure number, maybe it's measured daily, maybe weekly, maybe monthly, that gives confidence that everything's okay. And we believe that what will happen is if a shunt is beginning to fail, the pressure will rise quite early and that will happen before symptoms occur. So maybe you can get into this situation where we we like to call proactive care, where instead of waiting till the symptoms are bad, you're actually saying pressure's rising, okay, it's risen today and it's, you know, we've seen a pattern, a trend over time, we better go and call the hospital, call someone, a physician to to explain this and then act accordingly. Thanks to Simon Malpas, Dixon Leung, Brian Wright, Robert Gallishan and Daniel McCormack. This episode was produced by me, Claire Concannon. Sound engineering is by Phil Benj. Tim Watkin is executive producer. To make sure you don't miss an episode, you can follow the Our Changing World podcast on Apple, Spotify, iHeart, or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can keep in touch with us on Facebook and Twitter, at RNZ Science. You can also check out our webpage to see all of the previous Our Changing World episodes, to see photos and links related to this and other stories, and to subscribe to our email newsletter. It's at rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. And don't forget to check out some of the other amazing RNZ podcasts, such as Generation COVID, a new series about launching your adult life during the worst pandemic in a century. I'm Claire Kincannon. Thanks so much for your company. Kia pai to wiki.
subtle results. Still you, but with fewer lines. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulties swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis, or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com.